let's let's stay in that 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 place of prayer for a second longer this morning. Father, we we are not here today for what we can bring to your table. Father, when we when we look around and we see the people who we love who are here and we miss the people that we love who are not here. Um, Lord, as you are doing your work in and through us here in New River Fellowship, here in New River Valley, we know that we are not here because of what we can bring to you. We are grateful this morning that, you know, to all these, these things we face, be it addictions, be it strongholds, be it struggles, whatever it is, Father, we speak your name. Because it is not our name that carries any weight. It is not our lives that carry any, <laughs> anything that we can contribute to say, oh, God, but, but I've got this to offer to you. Father, your scriptures show us we speak your name. We speak Jesus' name. We are willing to let ourselves literally die, pass away, go to bed to take up your life. So, Father, as we move through your word this morning, man, we have praised you for who you are. We have seen ourselves in light of who that is. We have gotten to pray together, to tune our hearts together, to hear what your word has to say. Father, may, may that just shine forth now as we dive back into Matthew. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we are in chapter 24 today, and there's, there's something cool that's taking place. I, I almost, I almost uh, threw a lot at y'all and did 24 and 25 together because this is the last thing that Jesus leaves to his disciples before you know, some of the events surrounding his burial, his death, his resurrection before these things take place. So, uh, but uh, Abigail said it was too much, so you can thank her that you're going to get it in two pieces. But chapter 24 and chapter 25 really read together to get you thinking about when God is working out his kingdom on this earth, what has he asked you and I to be ready for? You know, as Jesus is moving through his final teachings, final instructions for his disciples, what is he actually calling them to say, okay, because this is who I am and because these are the, the things that are going to take place, this is what I, I need you to be ready for this. Chapter 24 might be familiar to some of you because this is one of the chapters that a lot of us will go to when we start thinking about end times. Right, there's a lot of prophecies and a lot of things that Jesus references from the Old Testament that are in this vein of a fancy church word, eschatology, right? The study of what are the things to come. And I'm, I'm not, I, I need you all to hear me. I'm not saying that there's nothing about end times that we can glean from this passage. But this is also in part why I've, I've walked us through complete books. So by the time you get to 24, there are, there are 23 previous chapters of what Matthew is trying to get us to see of what, what specifically he's kind of following Jesus and pulling out from Jesus' life and ministry for us. So whatever we're going to see in chapter 24 is going to fit with chapter 22, 23, you know, all the way down to chapter 1. And, and it, it's not so much focused on, I need you guys to figure out what are the things to come 
But Jesus is going to call his disciples to do something else this morning. And, and this same thing for 25, it centers around the readiness for the kingdom. I'm going to walk us through the whole chapter. I'm going to pause a couple different places and I'm just going to ask you guys two questions. And, you know, again, as, as the pastor, sometimes it's good for me to make y'all work a little bit. I'm going to pause and just give you, you know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds after I read a chunk to say, look back over what we just read and look for the answers to two questions. Because this is what's going to, we're going to piece together today. As we read, what does Jesus actually call his disciples to do? There is a lot in this chapter about God promising this will happen and I will take care of this and these things will come. But what, notice, let's pay real close attention. What does Jesus actually call his disciples to do? And then let's see if we can hear what is the point of these things taking place, okay? Keep those two questions in mind and then we'll, I'll piece it together for us. So starting in verse 1, this is Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will, be not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but just the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, take about 15 seconds. Look back over those first 14 verses. See if you can pick out what does Jesus call his disciples to do, and then what is the point? Why does he say these things are going to take place? Hold on to what you got. We'll keep reading. So starting in verse 15 now. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then Matthew inserts this little let the reader understand in parentheses, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days have been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. For from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, in those 15 more seconds or so, what does Jesus actually call his disciples to do? That's different from the promises of God says, I will do these things. And then see if you can spot why does Jesus call his disciples to do this? Hold on to what you got. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So back to verse 35. Heaven and earth are passing away. All of these things are taking place. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the wise and faithful servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One more time. What does Jesus actually call his disciples to do 
And what's the point of these things taking place? Father, we are grateful that we can come and look at your word this morning, not just to, to look at it, but to, light, to delight in it, to meditate on it. Father, we do believe your promise from Psalm 1 that when we come to this place to, by your spirit, read your word, to give you glory, that we will bear fruit. Father, as we answer these questions we've been coming to your word this morning with, Father, show us how you desire that to be done in our lives. So, hopefully you guys picked out and actually noticed there's not that many commands that God, Jesus, gives specifically to his disciples. There, you, we may have varying different numbers, but I count there's really only four main ones that Jesus actually tells his disciples, this is what I am preparing you to do. This is what you are getting ready for when you are in the kingdom. And the four commands kind of all fit together. They say roughly the same thing, and it's simply this, that Jesus calls us to prepare to live like him, okay? So let's go back and look through the chapter. Starting in verse 4, you see the first one. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. This is a charge of, I'm telling you disciples, here's what you are to do. See that no one leads you astray. The verb there, planao, simply means it kind of just wandering, right? That we know what's true and we're kind of just going off and, and doing our own thing. And I, I was trying to think about you know, when we talk about being led astray, we typically think about it as like someone or something is pulling our hand and trying to take us away from the direction we should be going. But I thought it's, that's one way to look at it. I think a more common thing you and I wrestle with is picture your favorite hike. Um, or let's just, <laughs> if you haven't necessarily, if hiking has not been your thing in the last 15 or 20 years, picture a walk around your neighborhood. Okay, a favorite walk that you would go on. Now, if, if you're on the walk, your goal is assuming you want to stay on the path, correct? If you're going on a hike, it's helpful to stay on the path. Uh, some hikes you can get away with, with not doing that. I have, I've hiked the Cascades walking up the water instead of the trail. It's a lot harder. Uh, I also haven't attempted that in the last 10 years. So there's probably a good reason for that. But it helps to stay on the path. If you're thinking about leading somebody astray, if your focus is walking on the path, then what's going to be more helpful to you? Pointing out all the different things that could potentially get you off the path or fixating on where the path is going, right? Which one of those two is going to be more helpful to actually staying on the path? See, when we, when we approach Matthew 24, 
most of our tendency is to say, well, okay, if I don't want to be led astray, let me try to piece together all these things in the middle between verse 4 and the next command, verse 13. What, you know, what are the wars? What are the rumors of wars? Which are the ones that are saying, I'm the Christ, but they're not the Christ? Which, which are the nations? Which are the kingdoms? What are the tribulations? Like, we focus on what are all these different things that could pull us off the path. Now, if you're hiking, you should be aware of the things that could pull you off the path. But I guarantee you, you will not catch all of them. I have never seen a snake when I've hiked Dragon's Tooth or McAfee's. But I would be a fool if I said, well, so that means there's no snakes on the mountains up there, correct? Right? Because my focus is not trying to spot every single snake. It is staying on the path. This is why Jesus reiterates the second charge, verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We'll get to what the endurance piece is in a little bit. But that Greek word is hupomeno. Meno is my favorite Greek word. It means to abide in something. It's the picture of like living in a house, right? That, that I would so trust something, I'd be willing to live in it. Upomeno is like supermeno, right? Like not only am I building my house there, like I'm, I'm barricading the doors in the wall so I cannot get out. I am staying in this place. I'm remaining in, I am persevering. So Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I'm not telling you that your focus when you're preparing to live out the kingdom is to go find all the different little bits and pieces that could pull you away. It is to stay fixated, to stay locked in and focused on what is on that path. Like what is the direction that you are going? I've heard one, one pastor put it like this. The focus of our endurance is not trying to decipher the pitfalls, but in preparing to live like Christ. And this is reiterated in the third and the fourth charges that I count. I, I'm sure there's one or two in there that I, I think I'm going to reference later that I didn't count in my initial, you know, three and four. But verse 42, therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. And then in verse 44, Jesus again says, therefore, you must also be ready. Those two words, they're, they're different, but they give the picture of keeping watch on something, having your gaze fixed on something, taking what you need for what is going on in front of you. In context, Jesus is telling his disciples, look, you're going to see things happen, so you need to know who I am and where I'm going. Keep your gaze there. Keep your focus there. That is what I'm preparing you to do. And I love this. I love that this is what Jesus tells his disciples because Matthew actually clues us in. I, I didn't ask you guys to pay attention to this because there's a lot of different things going on here. But Matthew actually tells us where is the disciples' focus currently? Why is Jesus having to say, I need you locked in with me? Because in verse, verses 1 and 2, what do the disciples point out to Jesus? They point out the buildings of the temple, right? Now, there, people debate as to why, you know, you know, are they just awed at the splendor? And they're thinking, wow, this is so big. One of the scholars I read said, well, the disciples were most likely country bumpkins. And so they're going into the city going, wow. Look, at, you know, there's, there's a couple different reasons why this could be. But it's interesting that really the disciples are thinking, Jesus, you just said in chapter 23, this temple is going to be desolate. You said not to swear by it. You're basically saying this temple, 
which this version of the temple, guys, took 80 years to build. And I was listening to one, uh, one commentator talk about this temple. There were stones that weighed hundreds of tons, right, that scientists and scholars still cannot explain how they moved the rocks to build this temple. Stuff that our technology today would struggle to keep up with, somehow they did it. It's probably why it took them 80 years. But they're amazed at essentially the what. Look at what we've accomplished, Jesus. Look at what we have done in our faith. And Jesus' reaction, it's not that big a deal. Verse 2. You see this, right? That's not it. That's not the focus. Then the second thing. So Jesus very quickly dismisses, you're focused on the what. Yeah. Not saying it's not important, but that's, that's not what lasts. Then the next question, they come to in verse 3. They, they go to Jesus and they say, my favorite question, when? When will these things be? How, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know these things are taking place? I love the question, when? And if you're in ministry, the when seems to be the part that is the hardest to wrestle with. Because even if you figured out what to do, waiting for the right time or waiting to see the fruit happen, the when is hard. So I, I very much relate with the disciples when they say, Jesus, when? You keep telling us about this kingdom, when is it coming? The disciples are focused on the what and the when. And what Jesus does is he tells them, where's your focus to be? The who. Why? Well, there's two really big things Jesus tells us. First, we don't even know the when. Verse 36, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Church, that really humbled me this week. Because I keep thinking of how many times I have asked God, God, when is this going to happen? Right? Like We've been fixated on you. We've been trying to talk about who you are and what you're striving to be and what your heart looks like and who you're king. Like, we've been looking at you. When are we going to see fruit, you know, in our personal lives, in the community, and in the church? Like, when, when are we going to see this? And it's almost as if Jesus turns around and says, you know what, guys? God doesn't even tell me the when. And if it wasn't important enough for God the Father to tell God the Son all the details of the when, then it's probably not considered mission critical, as Jesus is telling the disciples. I really don't like that, because I really want to know when. But if God the Father decided, you know what, even for my own son, that is not the primary thing I need you to know. Okay, okay, Lord, I hear you. And I think even more importantly, because the what and the when don't always give us hope. Okay, this is, I knew I missed one of the commands. This is verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. I love, basically, if you're paraphrasing Jesus there, he's saying, look, the world's going to get a little bit crazy, and it has to happen. The world's going to get crazy. Don't be alarmed. 
that hit me really hard when I was reading my notes this morning. Man, what is the first thing I do when I see something that's not quite right? Do I go to this place? Do not be alarmed. Knowing the what and knowing the when can be helpful, but sometimes it's just overwhelming. Because we go, Jesus, I don't even know when these things are going to happen. Jesus, I'm watching. It looks like we're going this way. I don't know when things are going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. The what and the when don't always bring the hope. This was, this was when I was going through the, uh, the bathroom renovation in our house, right? I knew what the problem was. We had stuff that was leaking. We had stuff that was breaking. We needed to fix it. I knew the when, right? Abigail and the kids are going to be gone for a week. I have one week to try to piece together to fix this. I knew the what, I knew the when. I went to bed every single night completely freaking out over the project. I knew the what and the when, well, I didn't know even the what of how to fix the bathroom. But what gave me hope was not knowing what was wrong or knowing my timeline for when it was going to be done. The hope came because there were people that came to help me do it, right? That I knew, okay, at the end of the week, Regardless of what the project looks like, I will not be the same because I'll know a little bit more about remodeling a bathroom than I did. Not enough to come do it in any of your houses, but enough to where I could show up with somebody and, and not be totally unhelpful. I'll put it that way. I knew that I would not be the same, and I knew that the Lord just kept sending people the entire week. Uh, one of my friends helped me uh, Sunday to Friday uh, people from the church here, you guys came and helped Friday, Saturday. My parents came down. Like it, it got done. I think I tallied up the number of hours we spent working on there, even though we did it in one week. It was like two and a half weeks of eight-hour days that got crammed into one week, right? But my hope, knowing the what, knowing the when, whoosh, that freaked me out. It was the who that actually gave me hope. And this is what Jesus says. When he says, verse 32, 33, from the fig tree, remember that was a couple chapters ago, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things, you know that, what's the hope, church? Verse 33, he is near. Jesus is near. That Jesus is preparing us to live like him. And that, that is the hope we have when we take on the work of his kingdom. That he's preparing us to live like him. He puts it this way in John chapter 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what are we preparing for in his kingdom? We're to live like Jesus. Very simple. So what does that look like? That's that second question when it's saying, look at what God is, Jesus is telling his disciples and then look at why. And the, the picture here, Jesus is going to say, we are preparing to live like him. By enduring in his love for others no matter what. This, the most convicting thing for me, church, verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
Jesus is saying, as these things are taking place, as the world's getting a little bit more crazy, as we are going, man, I have no clue what direction we're headed in. As lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But notice how Jesus doesn't say it's a particular group or a particular people whose love will grow cold. He doesn't say it's only the people who are getting caught up in wickedness that their love is going to grow cold for the people around them. We know that's true. Jesus just says the love of many, whether it is you loving many people or whether it is many people, both believers and unbelievers, that are just failing in their love for each other, the love of many will grow cold. The more that we see brokenness and the more things get crazy, it's not just a them problem. You and I, when we get more fixated on the what and we get more fixated on the when and we start to lose hope, this is what happens, church. We stop loving people. We stop caring for people. And this... This is, <laughs> I, I, it was incredibly humbling to me because I'm, I'm reading this that for the first time, this morning even, in, in, in reading it, because uh, I try to read through my notes before I get up here for you guys, and it just hit me, wow, he's not putting a qualifier on there. The love of many is going to grow cold. And love there is that Greek agape, right? The type of love that God has for us. Not the touchy-feely I'm accepting everything you're doing kind of love. The type of love that says, because you bear the image of God, and because I love God, I will value you, I will honor you, I will encourage you to live in that image of God. Jesus says we will fail to do this if we are not living like him. And that is when you get to verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus saying you endure by being fixated on me. And what have I called you to do? To love one another. To love one another. And it is only then, only then you get to verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. I love it. It's not when we get the what, perfect. It's not when we get the when, perfect. Not that it doesn't matter, and not that God does not care. But God says, if you are losing sight of me and who I am and what I have put forth before you, if you have stopped learning to love and look at one another as I do, you will stop proclaiming this gospel to the nations. And then he builds to this, this man, this powerful image in verse 27 and 28. He says, I know your tendency, guys, is to say, but I want to know the what. And I want to know the when. And Jesus says, look, you're not going to miss it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, as you can see a lightning strike and see it from miles around, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then verse 28 Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. I have many times looked up and seen flocks of birds circling in the sky. And you know what my first thought is? Oh, there must be a dead, something dead's over there. Right? Like, like we know that. We know that whenever the buzzards, whenever the vultures, whenever the crows, whenever the scavenger birds are, when they're circling, you know there's a dead body there. Jesus says, you're not going to worry about missing it. So how will the world be able to look and see, ooh, if the vultures are flying over there, then there's something over there for us worth avoiding, which is kind of what Jesus is doing in his analogy, saying, how will the world look? Where are the vultures going to be circling? 
different New Testament authors will say it slightly different, but they all hit on the same thing. John writes in his letters, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Here's how we can know that we are living out the word, that our hearts are right with God. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. He says it later, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever love has been born, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Peter puts it like this. He has this long list in chapter one where he says, here's what you need to do to become partakers in the divine nature. And typically when you see long lists in scripture, the end kind of covers all the previous ones. And the last thing Peter gives he says, you know, to your faith, you add gentleness. To your gentleness, you add graciousness. And he kind of, similar things to what Paul says, the thing Peter lands on, love. If you want to partake in the divine nature, the chief thing to add to our faith is love. James, Mr. Works, puts it like this. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. For which God has promised to those who serve him. Nope, sorry, wrong word. It says to those who perfectly nail down everything he's asking us to do. Nope. It says that God has promised to those who defend it. Nope, who love him. James 1, 12. Even Paul says we knew God's salvation came when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. Titus 3. And Jesus drives this home in verses 45 through 51. I'm going to kind of land with this because this is going to, if I keep going, we're going to get into stuff for next week. But Jesus leaves us with this parable of the faithful and the wise servant. Who is the faithful and wise servant? Who is the one who is walking out the kingdom, who is living this well? He says, is it the servant that beats his fellow servants, that eats and drinks with drunkards. And there is, a, there is a powerful thing Jesus does in the word he uses for drunkards. Because I picture Jesus is hanging out with someone who's a little bit inebriated, whose, whose mental faculties are not altogether there. And that is, the word he uses does physically mean drunk. But it is also used in the scriptures as a metaphor for talking about one who sheds blood or murders profusely. That Jesus says, do not be like the servant who goes and essentially takes life. And how often, I'm thinking in the New Testament, do you see God's gift of life and his love for us perfectly held together? What Jesus is doing is he's saying, do not be like the servant that has lost his love for his fellow servants. What you do is, verse 45, give them their food at the proper time. Food, if you guys remember when we were going through Exodus, bread is a picture of life. Life and God's love being very clearly linked together. This is his disciples, you know, they're of a Jewish background. They hear all these connections as he's 
walking through them. And then what really got to me is why was the servant wicked? Verse 48, he says to himself, my master is delayed. His focus is on the when. When we lose sight of who God is, and we lose sight that he has called us to love one another, and we're seeing very clearly that as we are learning to live like him, as we are learning to love one another, that Jesus is very clearly, as we've seen in Matthew, he's teaching us what that looks like and how that is appropriate and what things we do and not do out of that love for each other. The call is clear. When we are citizens of God's kingdom, what is he doing in us? He prepares us to live like him by enduring in his love no matter what. And so when we think about application today, guys, I think it is, is powerful to consider Jesus knows where the disciples are at as he's saying this. He knows they're going to be persecuted from the Jewish world, from the Roman world. He knows that they're going to struggle to figure out what does it look like to love one another. It hit me this past Tuesday when we were in community group. We're looking at the early church in Acts, and they were struggling to know what did it look like to love one another. Is it, is it loving the Jews? Is it loving the Gentiles? How much do we have to make the Gentiles look like Jews in order for the Jews to be happy? How much do you ask the Jews to say, well, they're not Jewish. The goal is not to make the Jews. The early church wrestled with what does it look like to love one another well. So for us to just land the plane and say, well, yeah, we know what that looks like. The early church that was walking with Jesus 20 years after his death, they still were struggling to figure this out, okay? But what Jesus has done in this chapter as he's given this is he's calling them actually to remember his original calling to them. Let me read for you as we close Mark chapter 3, two verses, three verses, verses 13, 14, and 15. Jesus says, remember what I have called you to do. And then he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. What qualified the disciples for this ministry? Was it anything they could bring to the table? For Jesus? Or is it the fact in verse 13, Jesus called to him those whom he desired? So, one point for application this morning, church, I want to just simply ask you do you trust that this is what God has made you to do? That God has made you for life with him? Because I know so many of our anxieties and so many of our struggles come, we don't know the what. We don't know the when. We're not sure how we fit in. We're not sure what we can contribute. We're not sure what, what things are taking place and how to respond to them. What God has done when he's called people to follow him is not based on what you are able to bring to the table or what you have figured out or already gotten correct or, you know, that you've gotten it incorrect and now you can't do it, that what God has done is he said, I desire you to be with me. Therefore, come. Just come. Do you trust this morning that this is the God 
who has his heart toward you. That he has made you to live with him and to live like him. Maybe today, yeah, we need to say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I hear in me. I mean, I struggle with the what, I struggle with the when, I don't know when things are going to happen, I don't know what this, I hear you, you desire me to be with you, that's what you've made me to do, I will trust you with this today. And notice again, what did Jesus appoint his disciples to do? He said, and he appointed 12 so that they may be sent out to preach and have authority, no, I skipped it, that they might serve others? No. He appointed 12 so that they may make disciples? No. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. The guy who leads the SEND network for the convention, his name is Vance Pittman. He put it like this in the very first opening session. God's primary calling for your life is not ministry. It is intimacy. That God, Jesus, did not call his disciples to preach. He did not call them to do something. He called them to be with him. And the promise is that as they're with him, then they will be able to go preach. Then they will be able to go heal. Then they receive the authority to cast out demons, right? What is your calling, church? It's not to ministry. I said this last week, any of us can rally around a cause, any of us can go get behind a movement. What God has called you to do, what the church can offer that no one else can, is intimacy with God. We minister out of that overflow. And so I want to ask you this morning, our second reflection question, how is your intimacy with God? If you are struggling today on the doing on the living out. If our ministry comes out of the overflow of our intimacy, if we're struggling in ministry, it's probably an intimacy problem. That was part of why I was convicted about corporate prayer for us. There is something intimate that we have with each other when you hear, oh, I'm not the only one who prays. Oh, there are other people who actually do this with me. There may be some more things that come up from that, but long term, how is your intimacy with God? And then you see the promise, right, that Jesus says, as I am, you are with me, I will send you out to preach. I will give you authority to cast out demons. I thought it's a really cool picture the word and the spirit are held together. I have been in churches where we were really good at the word, right? We knew all the things to do. We got all of our syntaxes and our Greek language down right. We had no spirit in it whatsoever. I've also been in churches where, man, we were really listening to the spirit, but we, we didn't really know the word that well. I think it's powerful when Jesus says, if you're my disciples and you're living with me, you are surrendered to both my word and my spirit. So the next question, last one, are you surrendered to both of these? And I cannot answer that for you this morning, church. But what we can do is we can give you a moment to just be still 
and ask God to say, okay, how is my intimacy with you? When is the last time we've talked? When's the last time I've been in your word? It can give you a moment to just have those conversations with the Father. And I do trust, guys, what we are seeing in here is that if Jesus is preparing us to live like him, to be enduring in his love for others no matter what, that he's going to show you something, okay? So we're going to take a minute or two, I'll let you pray, and then John can come back and we'll do our last song. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hope in thy word. There we see thee, not a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace, waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, not depart ye cursed, but look unto me and be ye saved, for I am God and there is none else. They that know thy name put their trust in thee. How many now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall, the freeness, the riches, and the efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee, and will through eternity exclaim, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator in whom all fullness dwells and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To him we look. On him we depend. Through him we are justified. May we derive relief 
from his sufferings without ceasing to abhor sin or to long after holiness. May we feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our consciousness. May we delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. May we be constrained by his love to live not to ourselves, but to him. May we cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments, but sensible of our desert and impressed with the number and greatness of thy benefits. May we bless and praise thee at all times. In your name, Father, we are grateful for you today. Amen.